I'm going to confine myself here just to introducing Richard. Uh, he began as, uh, by, as uh, Oscar Wilde put it, drawing first prize in the lottery of life by being born an Englishman. Um, in fact, he only just failed to be top of the first prizes by the, the breadth of the Pennines, I think, or more or less. Did you more or less. Yeah, he, he was on the wrong side of the Pennines, but that's all right. We'll forgive him for that. Um, as an, but, and as an undergraduate, his, his uh, education was at Oxford, where he was one of the first uh, intake of people doing philosophy and physics. Uh, but his postgraduate education and uh, subsequent career have all been in the United States. He, he got his PhD at Harvard in 1978, mm -hmm. and has held a number of posts in U US universities, in particular for the past several years as professor of philosophy at the University of Arizona at Tucson. He has, however, I'm glad to say, been a frequent visitor back to England, and uh, in particular one of those visits, at least one, to the Center for Philosophy of Natural and Social Sciences here. Uh, and I'm, so I'm especially welcome, especially happy to welcome him back again today to deliver his Lakatosh Award lecture under the title A World Without Particles or Forces. Richard. Thank you. Can you hear me? Good. Well, it's a, a great honor and privilege to be standing here perhaps even literally in the footsteps of my illustrious predecessors as winners of the Lakatosh Award. Um, uh, it's an unanticipated uh, but delightful uh, honor and privilege. I'm going to talk today based on my book and also some further somewhat speculative thoughts that I've come up with since finishing it about uh, some aspects of how 20th century physics has changed not only our worldview, but also our view of the role of fundamental physics in guiding a worldview. So my approach is going to be broadly historical. I'm assuming a general audience, despite the impressive array of my professional colleagues uh, arrayed before me. Um, and uh, they are unlikely to hear anything new, or if they get the suspicion they are hearing something new today, they probably won't like it very much. So uh, be aware that I have no hope of convincing you to like uh, what I say here because there's just no time and uh, besides the details remain to be worked out. Okay, so how am I going to proceed? I'm going to focus in my historical review of uh, physics on natural philosophy, the big picture, what physics is telling us about our worldview. Physics, after all, used to be called natural philosophy, one branch of philosophy which also included moral philosophy and various other good things. And I'm going to stress the significance in, of changes in physics for our worldview and for our view of how physics impacts or should impact upon a worldview. There are going to be two parts to the talk. Each part has roughly the same structure. There's going to be a build-up, historical in nature, to a conceptual problem. Uh, in each case, I will present a solution. The first part of the talk is based more uh, obviously on my book, and the solution I'll present to that problem is already in the book, and I'm fairly confident about that. The second part of the talk is more open. I will set it up uh, in the same way with a conceptual problem and present a solution. That remains speculative. That's the part that some of you aren't going to like. Okay, so let's see if we can get this going here. Uh, this is not an attempt to um, deplore the 
loss of colorful natural currencies with the introduction of the euro, but rather uh, to illustrate uh, an important figure in the, the history of natural philosophy, namely this guy, whoops, not that guy, this guy here, Democritus, a picture of a bust of Democritus. And he's famous, of course, for being one of the ancient atomists, those guys back in the fifth century BC who told us that the world consists of unchanging, indivisible, eternal particles in a void. Now, there's another thing on this uh, banknote which is of interest. Whoops, I'll get used to this in a minute. Okay, uh, over here, if my laser pointer were working, here we go, there is a depiction of an atom. That might look familiar to you, um, but it wouldn't have been familiar to Democritus. That's not what his atoms looked like by any means. Um, for him, atoms were, I think of them, as more like Lego blocks all kinds of odd shapes with protuberances and hooks and things that could collect together. Uh, and when they did, they would stick. And by thus sticking, they would compose the world, the part of the world that was not remaining void. So this model of an atom over there on the right, of course, it's a schematic model, was quite inappropriate. For one thing, it's not indivisible. You can see the structure there, right? There are those little electrons, uh, particles, charged particles whirling around this central nucleus. Um, uh, that might be the sort of picture of an atom that they thought it appropriate to put on a Greek banknote, and maybe that's the picture of an atom that you have in your head um, today. Um, by the end of the lecture, I hope, you, hope to disabuse you of the satisfactory nature of that picture also. Okay. So, according to these guys, there wasn't much evidence for it. This is as much philosophy as science. Um, fascinating history of atomism. When did it become scientific, and so on. Um, but atoms stuck around, and here is a depiction also of a corpuscular worldview, a worldview presented to us by Descartes, and what's depicted here is a whole bunch of solar systems. S is the sun, uh, T is our Earth, and you can see various other planets all caught up in the vortex, which was pushing all the planets around the sun by contact action. You'll notice all these little dots are supposed to fill up the entire um, picture, and indeed the entire world. There was no void in the Cartesian picture. Um, everything was matter in motion, and it remained a problem as how did that matter could move if there was nowhere empty for it to move into. But there are no forces here. There were no forces for Democritus. There are no forces for Descartes either, unless you take it that contact action um, in itself involves forces, one thing bumping into another. So we have the idea of particles, atoms or some such. And we have the idea that there could be forces, but it's only with Newton that forces start emerging as a significant player in natural philosophy. Newton titled his major work, The Mathematical Principles of Natural Philosophy, in part as um, a critique of Descartes' non-mathematical principles of philosophy. Newton was going to do it right and give you the mathematics for uh, the heavens, amongst other things. And um, it's also interesting that this is only the mathematical principles of natural philosophy. Newton actually thought there was room for uh, a, a serious uh, follow-up, namely um, the causal principles of natural philosophy that would explain where all these forces came from or how matter managed to interact, in particular, how it managed to act through the gravitational force, which he so successfully described in his law of universal gravitation, and with which he was able to, uh, in detail, explain phenomena involving 
the solar system, which Descartes had depicted in a rather colorful way, but not really helped us to understand in any great detail. So the Newtonian program introduces forces. I haven't said this yet, but Newton also, in, the, in his backstory, um, had the view that uh, matter is ultimately atomic. He didn't claim to have proved it. He didn't think that was uh, any part of his uh, science, but it formed an important backdrop to his own thought, and he restored the void. Um, so we're, in a sense, in terms of natural philosophy, closer to Democritus, except we've got these forces, not just gravitation, but the program for natural philosophy for Newton and his followers for, for many, many years was to find what the forces are in the world, not just gravitation, uh, electricity, magnetism, maybe chemical forces, maybe vital forces, whatever. Uh, there was an open playing field. Go out and find the forces, find the laws that governing their uh, behavior, and see what uh, happens when you let those forces loose on the particles which uh, compose the world. Okay. So, how far did that project go? Well, something of a blow was struck to this idea in 1915, according to the popular view, um, when Einstein decided that, after all, maybe gravity is not a force. Uh, maybe it doesn't take anything to push those, uh, well, push, hold those planets in orbit around the sun, um, because all they're doing is following the natural path. And what makes that the natural path? Well, it's the uh, behavior of space and time themselves, which are depicted here as curved, or at least space is depicted as being curved. And this indicates the path of light rays, which are as straight as they could be in the curved space-time. No force is acting on them, even though light is being, quote, bent by the sun. Uh, this picture is somewhat defective because it doesn't allow for the aspect of space-time curvature, which uh, involves time rather than just space. But it gives you the idea. If you believe Einstein, then it would seem gravity is not a force. So we've got rid of a force. Um, I say if you believe Einstein. The jury is still out on this one. One of my predecessors as Lakatosh Prize winner, uh, Harvey Brown, wrote a book where he stressed the physical nature of gravity, even in uh, Einstein's general theory of relativity. Today, uh, string theorists trying to develop a quantum theory of gravity uh, regard gravity as at least as much of a force, I think, as any of the other, quote, for fundamental forces of nature. How, how, how much of a force that is, we'll get on to later. Okay, so we still have electric forces, magnetic forces, and in the late 19th century, James Clerk Maxwell came up with a very... Uh, long-lasting and definitive and empirically successful theory of electric and magnetic fields. So the forces of electricity and magnetism then are going to be generated on the particles, the charged particles, by the field which is present at the location of those charged particles. We have a mathematical description of the fields and it, it turns out that it followed from Maxwell's theory that the fields by themselves were able to uh, exert interesting physical effects. In particular, light came to be thought of and as a propagating electromagnetic field, okay. as are indeed on this picture, Maxwell's field theoretic picture, uh, radio waves, x-rays, gamma rays, and so on. They're just uh, propagating electromagnetic fields at different wavelengths. So here's one. Okay? There it's propagating, you can see it. 
Um, think of the red arrow in either the front or the back plane as giving you the direction and intensity of the electric field, and the blue arrow as giving you the direction and intensity of the magnetic field as the whole field all by itself, just uh, moseys along. Actually, it's going at the speed of light. That's not exactly moseying. Um, and no particles are involved. Point being here that we have um, now, it seems, uh, something other than just particles. Uh, and uh, we haven't gotten rid of the electric and magnetic forces, but um, electricity and magnetism, electromagnetic fields, are an additional ingredient in our uh, natural philosophy. Now, perhaps that wasn't true already for Maxwell, but, uh, whoops, back up. But by the time of Einstein in 1905, that certainly was the picture because in 1905, Einstein came up with a theory which unified electricity and magnetism as in sense two sides of the same coin. And a propagating electromagnetic wave now was not propagating in anything other than the vacuum. Okay, so we're thinking now of there being such things as particles, fields, and forces, at least electric or electromagnetic forces. But is this the right view of light? Well, it's Newton, prior to Maxwell, um, included light within his corpuscular worldview. Um, he thought of light as consisting of particles. And why did he think that? Well, the main reason was that, as we all know, light travels in straight lines, and sound waves don't. They go around corners. Uh, so light can't be like a sound wave, thought Newton. Uh, it must be, or at least his hypothesis would have been, that it consists of particles. That seems to be quite in conflict with the Maxwell field picture of propagating electromagnetic waves. But if we look more closely, light doesn't always travel in straight lines. If you pass it through a very thin slit, um, the light emerging will emerge as a wave. I'll show you a picture of that in a minute. And if you pass it through two slits, then the light emerging from those two slits um, will interfere. The light emerging from one slit will interfere with light emerging from the other slit, and you'll get an interference pattern. Okay. So here's a picture of that. We have an incoming plane wave. It's hitting the two slits. And as it emerges, you can see right down at the bottom and right up at the top, it looks like you have sort of circular, uh, or more generally spherical, waves emerging from each individual slit. But, the, but they run into each other. And these kind of dirty looking bands in the middle uh, are places where they run into each other in a way that one is making things be a high electric field in that direction at the very same time and places the other one is making something be a high electric field in the opposite direction, and then they just cancel out. So you can imagine now that the light falling on the right-hand edge there will not be of the same intensity at all places. And indeed, if you look at the pattern, it looks something like this. You get these characteristic interference fringes formed. Um, where a lot of light has found its way here, high intensity because we have constructive interference between light from this slit and light from that slit, low intensity here because we have destructive interference. Um, okay, so this is what the pattern you get if just one of the slits, in this case slit A, is open. Uh, if you close slit A and just left slit B open, you'd get the same dotted pattern, only shifted down a bit so that it's opposite slit B instead of opposite slit A for the maximum intensity. When you open both slits, you get something quite different from the sum of the two patterns. You get these interference effects. So now it does seem that, after all, 
Maxwell was right, light is uh, a wave phenomenon, and so on. Okay. Julie, my uh, trusty assistant will now lower the lights while I perform a vanishing trick. No, seriously. Um, the next slide doesn't look very good unless uh, the lights are low. Now, okay. So, what happens if instead of using light as a source in this two-slit experiment, we get use a bunch of particles, electrons? Um, well, this. What this dis depicts is the individual detection of single electrons, one at a time. This is actually a speeded up uh, live video of an experiment that was done 20 years ago in Japan. And what do you see? You see lots of little dots on the screen. Um, it looks like you're getting very discrete hits where each individual electron strikes the screen. Um, and initially, it looks like the hits are all over the place. You just have random hits. Um, and to start with, that's a little puzzling. You'd expect that they will be hitting the same place unless they started out with slightly different properties from one another. Um, but not only is it not the case that the pattern of hits is random, as you see it building up, you will gradually see the emergence of a pattern. And the pattern that's emerging is just the same um, statistically as the distribution of intensity from two-slit interference of light. So electrons now are in some sense behaving like waves. Uh, we think of them as particles, but here they're behaving like waves. The whole experiment, by the way, uh, lasted about 30 minutes, and I thought you probably wouldn't have the patience to, to do, see, sit here for 30 minutes and watch that pattern emerge, so I speeded it up for you. Okay. Okay, thanks, Julie. Okay, so what's interfering? Well, one electron is not interfering with another. Um, as you saw, each electron was forming its own discrete hit widely separated in time from one to the next. Each electron, it seems, is interfering with itself in some sense. In some sense, we want to say each electron goes through two slits, or maybe it's inappropriate to ask the question which slit, if either, it went through. Um, if we want a wave here to understand what's going on, what kind of wave is it going to be? Well, the theory of quantum mechanics gives us a representation for such waves by an abstract mathematical object, which we call a wave function which just like uh, an electric wave has a certain height and a certain phase um, at each spatial point and can vary with time. So now we've changed theories. To understand electrons, we can't think of them as being straightforward Newtonian particles anymore. Um, they're behaving in a different way. We need a new theory to explain their behavior. That'll be quantum mechanics. As it's ordinarily understood, though this remains controversial, quantum mechanics does not describe electrons by saying that they follow definite paths through the experiment here or in any other case. That's what was wrong with the Greek banknote, if you like, because that depicted electrons as uh, following particular orbits around the atomic nucleus. And uh, the usual way of understanding quantum mechanics says that's just not true. They don't follow any kind of path around the nucleus. Okay. But these electrons are still behaving like particles in the sense that they are be acted on or capable of being acted on by electric and magnetic fields, so that's not a problem. Um, except when we look a little more closely. We add an ingredient to the two-slit experiment I was describing earlier, the experiment we could perform with either electrons or light. We perform it this time with electrons, charged particles, 
And we put this little thing behind the two slits. It's called a solenoid. And you've got one in your car. It helps the car to start. Um, it does that because when you pass a current through it, a magnetic field is generated down the middle. And um, in this situation, we're supposing that we've built a very tiny solenoid cleverly enough that the only electric or magnetic field it produces is indeed a magnetic field confined to its interior. So in some sense, we want to think that there are electrons coming from here. They're hitting the screen over here. And if the solenoid weren't there, we get the two-slit interference pattern I just showed you. The mere presence of the solenoid won't make much of a difference. What happens if we pass a current through the solenoid so that we get a magnetic field down the middle? Well, what would you expect? The electrons are particles in some sense, although they do wavy things as well. And particles get acted on by electric and magnetic fields, which makes a deviation in their trajectories if they had such things, and will certainly be expected to make a difference to the interference pattern. But there's no electrical and magnetic field acting on these particles as they go through the experiment. There's no electric field, there's no magnetic field anywhere outside this central solenoid. Um, the only field present is the magnetic field down the center. Well, this is what happens. Uh, you get a shift in the interference fringes. The original pattern is indicated as dotted. You still get a pattern, but the fringes within the pattern are located in different places. If you look carefully, and I've drawn it right, the overall shape, the overall envelope, is not shifted at all. And that's sort of a clue that what's going on here could not be understood in terms of forces acting on the electrons. And yet, their behavior is different. Something about that solenoid produced a change in the behavior of the electrons, even though they were never acted on by any electric or magnetic forces. That's the problem. How could that be? Why is that a problem? Well, you might say, look, it's, it's not a problem. Look, They've got a magnetic field inside the solenoid. That's what produces the effect. It acts on the electrons. But the electrons don't go where the magnetic field is. So if that's the right story, then you have action at distance. Well, so did Newton. What's the problem? I mean, uh, th there are various problems. I think the central problem is that the, the great conceptual breakthrough in introducing electric and magnetic fields was to uh, restore a strict um, local action that uh, the fields only act on particles where the particles and the fields are co-located. That's not true here. So it's almost as if the best things that the field gave us are no longer um, available if we take this action to distance view. Well, what other kind of view can we take? Um, well, here, let me step back a bit. Classical electromagnetism certainly concerns electric fields and magnetic fields, and Einstein said they're just two sides of the same coin anyway. Um, but mathematically, it had proved convenient to represent electric and magnetic fields by an object called a potential. The electric potential is very familiar to you. When you go into a, sure, a store and buy a battery, it might say one and a half volts. Um, that means that at least if you don't demand too much of it, there will be a potential difference between uh, the negative and the positive terminals um, of one and a half volts. But suppose you ask the shop assistant, well, I know there's a one and a half potential difference between the two, but what potential is this terminal at? They would look at you as if you were nuts. The absolute significance of the potential is unimportant. All that counts is the potential difference, because potential differences that drive electric fields. There's an arbitrariness in what number you assign to the electric potential. 
Similarly, but slightly more complicated, one can generate magnetic fields in terms of mathematical calculations from an underlying magnetic potential, which has the added peculiarity of having a direction as well as a, a magnitude or size. And so you might say those are what's uh, involved in this experiment. So here's a picture that you might want to draw upon to try to appeal to, in this case, the magnetic potential. We have a, a picture of the solenoid blown up. We have the magnetic field going down the middle, the current through the wire around the solenoid going around the solenoid. And then we have these lines here with this mysterious A potential thing and arrows on it. I said A potential. I should have said A potential. That's to say, um, there are many distinct mathematical potentials of which this is just one uh, particularly nice one, which if you imagine them as somehow or other associated with what's going on outside that solenoid, um, would uh, correspond, first of all, to the presence of zero magnetic or electric field outside the solenoid. And secondly, and most importantly, if you plug that potential into quantum mechanics, it would exactly predict the shift in the interference patterns that you observe. But the prediction itself would be completely independent of which of the infinite variety of potentials you chose to put in there. So there's a possible explanation of what's going on, which says, well, you know, one of those potentials actually gets it right. One of them tells you what features each point in space at each moment of time is present um, outside the solenoid. Um, and uh, it's those features which locally act on the electrons as they're passing between the slits and the detection screen. The trouble is, there's just too many choices. And nothing in either the experiment or the theory that so successfully explains it picks out any one of them as being the correct choice. The potential in this experiment is radically indeterminate. So we have two possible solutions to the problem that I posed here. What explains what's going on in experiments like this? The first one involved appeal to action at distance, and that looked bad for various reasons. The second one appeals to this locally acting, uh, in this case, magnetic uh, potential. And that seems bad because the, there's an infinite variety of different choices for what this potential will be, and no clear-cut uh, way of, un of picking one rather than another, either theoretically or experimentally. But the theory that does explain this uh, appeals to directly something which is not indeterminate. There's an invariant feature uh, associated with this potential. Um, however, that invariant feature is not uh, a feature which attaches at particular points in space at particular moments in time. It's something that attaches on entire loops. For example, the loops that are indicated but in the diagram but with the arrows where it says a potential. So that's the view that I defended in the first part of this book. Um, the view that if you take seriously the mathematics of our best theory that accounts for this effect, then that shows you something about the, um, what's going on as far as electricity and magnetism goes. There's an invariant feature which correctly predicts the observed shift. But that's not localized at spatial points. It's localized on loops. And its values on those loops are not determined by the values of anything located at the points on those loops. In that sense, they are holistic properties of the entire loop. That's a feature not only of loops in space, but generalizing it a feature of loops in space-time. Um, and uh, in particular, then, if you try to figure out, uh, or if you were to try to figure out what the property of this big loop here encircling the solenoid is, 
then you could do all the experiments you liked in these little patchy regions here and compare notes with your friends in all of the other patchy regions and you would all confirm the presence of no electric or magnetic fields and the presence of nothing um, which would generate any funny behavior where you to perform interference experiments within those little loops but um, you would not be able to uh, reach the conclusion that there would be funny behavior uh, caused by the uh, behavior of the holistic feature of the entire big loop. So what does that mean? It means that uh, no, everything what's going on at every point in space-time, that's not enough to tell you what's going on everywhere. Some philosophers um, find that interesting. Maybe you do too. I don't know. Okay. So how does the fringe shift come about on this account? An increased current causes a corresponding shift just by changing the holistic magnetic features of things like this big loop. Um, and uh, that uh, is exactly what you need to um, modify the relative phases of the probability waves, one going one way around, one going the other way around, crudely speaking. Um, and it's the change in the relative phases which causes the interference effect. No force acting on the electrons. The phase change brought about by a holistic feature of, of classical electromagnetism. So my claim, first of all, is that that certainly isn't action at distance, so this is better than the first account, but it's kind of a weird action because it's not action at a point either. Um, what else can we say about this? We can say we still have patchy determination. That's to say, if we knew what the, uh, the features of every single loop everywhere in space, or more, more generally space-time are, then that would determine um, the, the, whoops, the necessary um, uh, features of this big loop. Um, that seems trivial, make the loops even smaller, right? If we knew the uh, holistic properties of every arbitrarily small loop everywhere in space-time, that would determine the uh, uh, relevant holistic property of that big loop and all other big loops. Um, and that's what um, is going on in this situation. If you think about causation, this is interesting, right? There's a clear distal causation. Cranking up the current in the solenoid changes the interference pattern. That's as clear a case of causation as you could imagine. But you're missing the intermediate link. You don't have a, a nice continuous in space and time causal story of how that comes about anymore. Okay, so that was part one. I presented you with one conceptual problem and my solution to it. But now we move on. Because the story I just told you is not physics's last word. Why not? Because the story I just told you depended on a, an account of uh, particles, namely electrons, which was quantum mechanical. We moved away from good old classical mechanics of Newton. It also depended on a story about electricity and magnetism, which was still classical. We still were using good old Maxwell's electric and magnetic fields, but we did have to appeal to the underlying potential here in a way that we didn't need to uh, before we linked up good old classical electromagnetism with uh, quantum mechanics in situations like this. So recall what we said about light. Maxwell's classical electromagnetism implies light is a wave. But is it? Well, Newton didn't think so, but we already saw the reasons why Newton's reasons for thinking so were not conclusive. Einstein in 1905 
formed the heuristic hypothesis that at least in certain circumstances, electromagnetic radiation sometimes behaves more like a collection of particles than waves. Those were given a name by the chemist, Lewis, in 1926, who called them photons. So we have a new picture of light now. It's not the Newtonian picture, and it's not Maxwell's picture either. If you want a picture, this is hardly a picture anymore. I'll give you a few words. We think of discrete packets of energy and various other things like momentum and polarization and so on. That's what you think of these photons as being. What is a photon? Well, it's an energy state of a quantized electromagnetic field. Maxwell's electromagnetic field was classical. We're doing quantum mechanics on the field now, not just on the particles, which we were doing when we changed our story about the electrons. And let me talk a bit about photons. You've heard of electronics. Some of you might have heard of photonics as well. Um, these days, our ability to manipulate and finally control photons is quite extraordinary. There are devices like this. This is a rather colorful depiction of a, a device which spews out um, in these central, well, not central, these little green areas here pairs of photons in these puzzling entangled states that some of you might have heard about at the rate of about a million a second. Um, so you can produce these at will with finely controlled properties which in, uh, in the fall were successfully used in a demonstration of a provably secure key distribution system for um, quantum cryptography which uh, managed to link together several banks in Vienna and exchange information of a kind that one would want to keep secret in a way that was provably secure. So this is a tool now. We can generate photons and do cool things like them, with them. This is not some airy-fairy heuristic hypothesis that Einstein came up with in 1905. What else can these photons do? Well, they can travel freely in otherwise empty space, but when a photon with high enough energy encounters matter, interesting things can happen. And here's some interesting things happening. One of the clearest evidence that there were circumstances in which you better treat photons as particles is indicated down here, Compton scattering. A very high energy photon uh, just goes close enough to an electron to smash into it and send it careering away. Um, and uh, other things can happen to photons. They can, uh, in a, a, incidents like this. This is a track. Actually, it's rather an unfortunate picture because somebody's inked it in. Um, if they hadn't inked it in, you wouldn't have seen anything there. It would just have been a blank. Uh, this point here is a point where a photon with high enough energy is actually able to create particles, one of which is an electron. You can't just create a single electron. That would violate conservation of charge. So we have a balancing positron, the antiparticle of electron. So photons can be annihilated, and electrons can be created. This is not at all like Democritean atoms, right? Um, and here we have uh, annihilation of the positively charged antiparticle of an electron producing that photon. Um, so we have interchange between electrons and photons. And they're all kind of particle-like, and they're all kind of uh, wave-like. Um, and they, in this respect, they seem to be treated pretty much the same. Of course, there are deep technical differences. One are fermions and the other are bosons and so on. Uh, but I don't want to get into that today. Uh, for those of you who know what I just said, that's fine. And those who don't, that's fine too. Okay. Um, so we're now thinking of photons as the quanta of a quantized electromagnetic field. I already gave you that much. 
In about 1949, Feynman and a bunch of other guys came up with a theory which is called quantum electrodynamics, or for short, QED. There's a lovely little book that he wrote about it recently, um, which uh, I strongly recommend to you. The important point here is that we're now restoring the symmetry and treatment between photons and electrons. Photons we treated as quanta of a quantized electromagnetic field. We're now going to treat electrons as quanta of a quantized electron field. Uh, quantum electrodynamics then becomes the theory of interacting photons and electrons and positrons and a few other things. And we're thinking of them in as far as it makes sense to think of them this way, as quanta of a quantized electromagnetic or a quantized electron field. That's the way physics has been going since 1949 or so. Uh, this quantum electrodynamics was a model for the kinds of theories we consider today to be fundamental, although perhaps they will soon no longer be fundamental as progress continues. Um, in particular, a model for what came to be called quantum chromodynamics, a theory of how the constituents or supposed constituents of the nucleus interact, the theory of interacting quarks and gluon fields. Quark is an imaginative name, but they could have done better than gluon, I think, um, in the nucleus. It's also the model for another theory, uh, which incorporates quantum electrodynamics this time by including not just electromagnetic interactions, but also what are called weak interactions, namely the Weinberg-Salam electroweak theory. All of these, quantum chromodynamics and the Weinberg-Salam electroweak theory, which in appropriate regime gives us back quantum electrodynamics, constitute the so-called standard model. In the old days, people used to say standard model of elementary particles. They tend to drop the words elementary particles these days. I think that's probably a good thing for reasons that we'll go into in a minute. Okay, so as of the last quarter of the 20th century, our most fundamental th theories, uh, we've forgotten about gravity and I will continue to do so, um, uh, of uh, electricity, magnetism, the strong forces, the weak interactions, um, have been those incorporated in the standard model. All of these now are interacting quantum field theories. We describe the electrons, say, by a quantum field. We describe the, the photons, say, by a quantum field. We describe their interactions by an interacting quantum field theory. Okay, so how does all this theorizing, what does all this theorizing do for us if we want a picture of the world? What objects do these theories posit? And what are their supposed properties? Well. If you talk about elementary particle physics, a naive view would be, well, they're talking about elementary particles, right? Um, and a naive view would depict them, these ele elementary particles, as exerting forces on one another. Indeed, there are pictures which seem to depict exactly that. Here's the two electrons. They're moving along in time and various trajectories in space. And look, when they get close to each other, they repel each other. And that's because they exert a force on one another. And the force, indeed, is being mediated by some wiggly line in the middle, which uh, represents the exchange of a virtual photon. Well, don't get too worried about the word virtual, because I'm shortly going to tell you that this diagram is not at all a diagram of what is happening in space and time. This is a simple Feynman diagram, the kind of diagram that Feynman used when presenting his theory. and um, has been consolidated and been a great practical benefit for people who wanted to use and deploy that theory. So it, a diagram like this looks like it's giving you a natural philosophy answer. Particles there are, 
and they exert uh, forces one on one another by exchanging other particles. Um, so we've still got the particles, we've still got the forces, and that's what the theories are telling us about in a very complicated mathematical way. But, as I already said, it's wrong to think of this as depicting the behavior of particles in space and time. If you read Feynman's book, QED, he still seems to think of uh, the theory as, in some sense, um, let me back up. He thinks of the theory in terms of particles interacting in space and time. But I don't think Feynman himself even believes that the theory does depict particles uh, interacting in space and time. He's just found that a fruitful heuristic for um, deploying the mathematics of the theory. So now we're on to the second part of the talk and the problems. Okay? And I want to read to you a, an extended quote from one of the um, uh, most uh, influential publications by, I would think, England's, uh, my candidate for England's greatest theoretical physicist of the 20th century, uh, Paul Adrian Maurice Dirac. In the first edition of his uh, classic Principles of Quantum Mechanics, he said this in the introduction. The methods of progress in theoretical physics have undergone a vast change during the present century. Of course, he was talking about the 20th. The interesting thing is he said this in 1930. The next 70 years basically continued to illustrate this prophetic pronouncement or the truth of this prophetic pronouncement. The classical tradition has been to consider the world to be an association of observable objects, particles, fluids, fields, etc. Let me stop right there. When he says observable, um, he doesn't mean something that you can see with your eyes and touch with your hands and hear with your ears. He has an extremely abstract notion of observability in play here. You can use the fanciest equipment you like, built at great expense and um, using most sophisticated technology. That's what he's talking about when he's talking about observable. Later on, he talks about um, directly aware. Well, he doesn't mean that either. He means if you use that fancy billion-dollar machine in CERN, you can become aware of it. Okay. The classical tradition has been to consider the world to be an association of observable objects moving about according to definite laws of force so that one could form a mental picture in space and time of the whole scheme. This led to a physics whose aim was to make assumptions about the mechanism and forces connecting these observable objects to account for their behavior in the simplest possible way. It has become increasingly evident in recent years, however, that nature works on a different plan. Her fundamental laws do not govern the world as it appears in our mental picture in any very direct way, but instead they control a substratum of which we cannot form a mental picture without introducing irrelevancies. The formulation of these laws requires the use of the mathematics of transformations. The important things in the world appear as the invariance, or more generally the nearly invariance, of these transformations. The things we are, quote, immediately aware of, unquote, are the relations of these nearly invariants to a certain frame of reference, usually one chosen so as to introduce sim special simplifying features which are unimportant from the point of view of general theory. So what? Well, if this is right, then physics should be about these invariants. What are the invariants? Particles are not invariants. If you want to come up with a representation of a theory which, from one perspective, will give you particles, in another perspective, it'll give you something else. Particles are not invariants. Um, fields, they're not invariants either. Uh, you can pass from one representation to another, and you can get rid of the fields. Oh, so I boldly proclaim, despite uh, 
anticipated objections. So what is invariant? Well, um, here's something that's invariant. It's a Lagrangian, the electroweak Lagrangian of the standard model. Um, finally, we get some mathematics, right? I'm not going to go through it and explain. I certainly don't expect that you will understand exactly what's going on here. Um, but I want to say a little bit about the sense in which this thing, which is part of uh, the um, Weinberg-Salam electroweak theory, is invariant. Um, it's composed of three parts, equals L1 plus L2 plus L3. Um, and each of them is itself invariant, and therefore the whole thing is invariant under a variety of different possible transformations. It's invariant under uniform shifts of this whole system, which in some sense is represented by the Lagrangian in space or in time. It's invariant under rotations of the entire system. It's invariant under uniform changes of speed of the entire system in any direction. It's invariant under so-called gauge transformations of various potentials, like this B potential here, um, and uh, an association with a corresponding uh, transformation in these R and L uh, fields here. By the way, the second part of my book tried to argue that this kind of gauge invariance doesn't have empirical content in a way that the other kinds of um, gauge invariance I just talked about in certain circumstances do. Okay, so this is the invariant. That's what we mean by invariance. What's this got to do with the picture of the world? Very little, actually. Um, what can we say this represents? We can't picture a Lagrangian. It doesn't represent anything observable, even in um, Dirac's extremely extended sense of observability. What does it do for us? Well, it's the source of field equations. If we've got the Lagrangian, then we can write down the equations governed by the um, interacting quantum fields. And that's a nice thing to do, but we still haven't got anything observable because you can't observe operators, the things that figure in the uh, uh, field equations. We say a bit about this. It has the formal structure of something a bit like energy, or more specifically, energy density. But it's only a bit like it. And the formality of structure doesn't enable you to say, ah, oh, it's really representing energy. That, that would be wrong for all kinds of reasons. Nothing about particles appears in this. Okay? How about forces? Nothing about forces appears here either. All you've got is so-called interaction terms in the Lagrangian. That's what's sort of standing in for all that stuff about the forces, which you, Newton took so seriously. When p physicists today talk about the fundamental forces of nature, what they have in mind is the things that you stick in an interaction term in Lagrangian, um, at least for the uh, standard model. So what's the use of this? Well, you get field equations from it. Well, so what? Um, the Lagrangian is an essential input to an algorithm from which you can calculate measurable quantities, like scattering cross-sections and lifetimes. The algorithm has another key input in addition to the Lagrangian, which is something like a quantum wave function. Given this, the quantum wave function, and the field operators obeying these field equations that you can derive from the Lagrangian, then you can calculate probabilities for experimental results. Great. Okay. The Lagrangian doesn't describe particles in any obvious way. The wave function can't even be understood to describe particles, even in a non-invariant way. That's another um, claim I would have to back up with a lot more discussion. What you've got is the input to a bunch of very complicated calculations. The calculations typically proceed by a sequence of progressively better approximations. That sequence has no natural termination. If you're a mathematician, it's even worse, because it doesn't converge. 
Um, you just stop when the cost on doing more calculations exceeds the perceived benefit in the precision achieved by doing so. So if we go back to this picture. This picture is not what a picture of what's going on in space and time. It's a picture of a calculation. And if you want to get a better approximation to the predictions uh, that you can confirm in the laboratory, you better consider a lot more pictures of calculations like this. So what we've got on the left here is a labeled and slightly fancier um, depiction of the first uh, uh, picture. And you can see in schematic form the calculation which it depicts. Just doing that won't give you the exact answer. So then you have to draw a bunch more pictures. Uh, and that will give you a better approximation if you want to calculate something you can compare with uh, predictions. So it becomes quite clear now that all of these pictures aren't going to give you a natural philosophy. They're just pictures which help you to keep track of things when you're doing very complicated calculations. OK, once you've done those calculations, what do you do? Well, you compare them to experiment. You go out and you build enormously expensive uh, uh, machines like this, uh, the Large Hadron Collet Connet Collider, uh, which is uh, crossing the border between France and Switzerland. To get the idea of the scale of the thing, it's 26 kilometers in circumference. There's a little airport just there, and the city of Geneva here, Lake Geneva, and the Alps. This is a picture of the tube through which these things which they continue to call protons are accelerated to enormous energies and smashed into each other. That's the way these guys talk. If you're an engineer designing this, that's the way you better talk, I think. Okay. Um, and once you've got these protons uh, at very high energy, then you smash them into each other and you find out what comes out in detectors like this. Um, you see, to get the idea of the scale, that there are some men here at the bottom getting ready to, to fix it. Um, this thing in the middle is the beam tube uh, around through which the, uh, the protons are circulating in opposite directions. And, and they're smashed into each other, uh, presumably right there, if this is the detector which is going to detect the, the products of this. OK, so I've talked about the standard model. I said it was based on a Lagrangian quantum field theory, which includes both the electroweak and the quantum chromodynamic Lagrangian. And this has made many accurate predictions. Uh, that's why we love it so much. But one key prediction remains to be experimentally tested. Um, let me back up a bit. OK. See this phi down at the bottom here? That's a field. What field? The Higgs field. Um, the Higgs field, like all these other fields, would have quanta associated with it if this theory is on the right track. Uh, but we've never seen any Higgs particles, the quanta of the Higgs field. So the first order of business for the Large Hadron Collider, when they finally get it fixed and up and running, is going to be to see whether they can find the Higgs particle, the quantum of this field. Okay. If they did, they would see events like this. Okay, This is a depiction of the so-called collision products that would emerge when you smash protons against one another. This is a simulation of the kind of collision you'd expect to see if you were lucky enough to, uh, quote, discover a Higgs particle. Okay. So here's what I want you to think about now. How should you think about the discovery of the Higgs particle? 
Suppose that the search succeeds and they announce, great success, it's worth all the billions, we've discovered the Higgs particle. Would that show you that the discovery of another elementary particle adds to the list of those of which the world is composed? Fundamentally speaking, that's world, what the world is built out of. Would it put the crowning touch to 20th century physics' description of three of the four fundamental forces these particles exert on one another? Well, I have an answer written down here, but I won't give it to you. I'll let you figure it out for yourself. Let's go back to Dirac's quote. Okay? Um, the important things in the world appear to us as the invariance of these transformations. The things we are immediately aware of are the relations of these nearly invariants to a certain frame of reference. Okay. So what are we immediately aware of? Well, by his way of using immediate awareness, we're immediately aware of the Higgs particle. Is that an invariant? No way. Is that something of which the world is composed? I don't think so. I mean, that doesn't need to be a useful way of thinking about the relationship between the theory uh, which predicts the um, results of one of these enormously complicated collision processes um, and uh, any hypothetical world lying behind all of that. So now I'm going to say things that are quite controversial. I would say we never observe an invariant like the Lagrangian, one of the supposed important things in the world. We only observe how the world presents itself to us from the perspectives accessible to us as creatures embedded in that world. So what I'm doing now is generalizing Dirac's relatively precise notion of a frame of reference to a less precise notion of perspective. And the claim is going to be then that all we do is get various perspectives on the world. We see what it looks like from various perspectives. Our perspectival glimpses may not neatly fit together into a single fundamental story of what the world is really like. I say they may not. It'd be nice if they did. The point is that physics can progress without requiring that they always do. Physics doesn't offer at the moment, and it doesn't require in general any such fundamental story. It progresses by increasing our set of perspectives on the world. We can both exploit those for practical purposes, and we can enjoy them for the insight they give us into the unfathomable richness of the world. So if we go back to the first part of the talk, the story I gave you about the, uh, the funny effect, I never told you what it was, the Harnoff-Bohm effect, AB, um, involving the uh, shift in the interference fringes when you pass electrons through two slits and turn a current through a, on through a solenoid. If you go back to that story, I think that's still physics' best story of that effect from one perspective, from the perspective, in this case, uh, in part, of the theories which were used in that context. Well, shouldn't we use our best theories? Shouldn't we use the standard model to explain what's really going on in the Harnoff-Bohm effect? Good luck. Uh, I've never seen anyone try it. I think it would be a mistake. It would be too hard, and you wouldn't get much um, useful information from the attempt. So the claim then is that um, if you want to understand the Harnoff-Bohm effect, you use these theories. They're not our most fundamental theories. But that's OK. Uh, they give us insight into the world from a certain perspective. Um, on the other hand, there are other contexts in which you need to use our most fundamental theories. Uh, the standard model is required when you want a different kind of perspective on other phenomena that just can't be captured by a similar story to the 
story I gave of the Aharonov bomb effect. Okay, so is our world a world of particles and forces? Well, it appears so from some physical perspectives, sure, but not from others. And to appreciate the significance of experiments like that currently underway, or about to be underway in Geneva, um, I think that you have to be able to retain the flexibility to switch between perspectives. From one perspective, yeah, we've discovered an, an elementary particle. From another, well, you know, wouldn't it be best to think about what's going on in terms of that Lagrangian, of which we can't form a mental picture, or in terms of interacting quantum fields, which are certainly not like Maxwell's classical fields. Um, maybe there is no best perspective provided by contemporary physics. And that's fine because it provides many perspectives, and that richness um, adds to our understanding of this rich and unfathomable world. Thank you. Richard, uh, we do have some time for discussion. I, yeah, yeah. I was going to say that if you needed, wanted to discuss and you were up there or make a point, then you have to come down here, but that's not true. We have two roving mics. If people would indicate uh, that they would like to raise a question, then I will point them out and a mic will arrive. Chris Timpson. Thanks. So this is on the Dirac quote. Yeah. Um, you didn't say this and you perhaps didn't mean it, but uh, presumably Dirac himself didn't mean by what he said that we should think of the Lagrangian as that which is invariant. I mean, from what I recall, my considered view of what he's talking about there is, I mean, surely he's talking about just the Hilbert space vectors, so representations of the wave function which don't advert to particular choices of mm -hmm. observable quantities. That's certainly one thing he's talking about. But, but does he, and given what his whole book is about, I don't think he mentions the Grangians once, does he, in the book? Um, it would be hard not to think. Authority on that question. I, I think it would be hard to see him as adverting to the Grangians. Okay, so he does talk about it in the, in the final chapters. Um, so that, that was the, what, what it seems to be to me in that quote is it's to do with he's talking about Hilbert space vectors as opposed to anything else. And the other point is I, I find it hard to understand uh, what it means to take the Lagrangian fundamentally if the Lagrangian is supposed to be part of specifying the laws because the world isn't made out of laws. The mm -hmm. laws govern the stuff in the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, um, by the end, I was consciously generalizing way beyond anything Dirac intended. So the question as to whether back then he was intending any more than the invariance under Hilbert space rotations um, is one that doesn't really uh, affect the way I was using Dirac. Um, I suspect that he was actually thinking also of invariance in relativity, um, in addition to unitary uh, symmetry in quantum mechanics. Um, and the fact that those two examples are sufficiently different from one another makes me at least speculate that he thought that was the way it was going to go, that there were going to be many other similar cases, um, different from those two, but similar in the relevant respect. Um, see, there was a second part to your question. Could you repeat that? Right. Okay. Um, that's a good point, but then you want to find something the world is made out of. Um, and what's that going to be? Well, 
uh, maybe transition amplitude, I mean, uh, that's not going to work either. Um, maybe wave functions, but then going to change when you change representation too. Um, I mean, one thing that's nice about the Lagrangian is it is invariant, okay? To find something that isn't invariant, uh, something like Lagrangian that's invariant, and as a candidate for representing what the world is really like, is the challenge. Um, but, you know, make suggestions. Uh, that will be fun to look, to look into them. Sorry, there's an extra rule which I forgot. I'm very bad at sharing things. Uh, that was Chris Timpson from Oxford. Can everybody else ask a question, say who they are and where they're from? I'm Adrian Renton, the Independent. Um, one of the things that strikes me is, is how much the basic thrust of what you're saying is coherent with what Alfred North Whitehead was writing about and, uh, you know, the basic the sort of process metaphysics. And, in fact, you know, and he came to pretty much the same conclusions from looking at the current intellectual context of, of the emergence of quantum theory and relativity. But he has been sort of forgotten and almost mm -hmm. ridiculed mm -hmm. by the, uh, the philosophical establishment, and certainly the Anglo-Saxon philosophical establishment. And I'm just interested in your thinking as to whether actually, uh, you know, looking back at some of the stuff that he was trying to work on mm -hmm. is, is actually going to be useful in taking forward the sort of program of thinking about these things as you see it. Um, he hasn't been forgotten, but he's not remembered by many people. And um, I would include myself amongst the majority of people who don't remember him. So I'm, <laughs> I, I'm not an expert on Whitehead. I can't make comparisons. Um, the little I know about Whitehead doesn't make me eager to go and read more to see if that'll help me understand what I'm trying to understand. But there certainly are people around um, who take Whitehead quite seriously today. Um, so it wouldn't be quite fair to think he's been like, dismissed and sort of put in the rubbish bin of history or something. Um, uh, I'm just not the one to, to, to bring him back into play in this context. David Wallace, Oxford. Um, just trying to pin down what the criteria here are for things that are candidates to be to be real, if you like. I mean, what? So it's just just to be clear. If I said, well, scalar invariance of the quark field, is mm -hmm. that okay? Well, that's gauge invariant. Right, but um, if it's just a quark field, then um, what we're looking at is uh, still some product of operators or something. Well, okay, uh, so expectation value, obviously. Okay. Um, well, again, uh, how do we understand those? I mean, the way I would understand them. Um, I mean. One could try to understand in different ways, but as a first shot, I would understand expectation values as uh, corresponding to or representing uh, predictions for measurement results. Um, and measurement results, I wouldn't think of as being a fundamental constituent of the world. I recommend an alternative interpretation. Of yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, seriously, okay, okay, sure. But distinguish, I mean, distinguish presumably, we, we might have things that are. Well, well, A, we might have things that are rebarbatively alien, but mm -hmm. at least are invariant and contingent. Mm -hmm. Also, I, I take it that there's a need to distinguish between things that are specifically coming to us from the quantum measurement problem um, from things that are coming to us from the alienness of quantum field theory and the gate invariance. Mm -hmm. So you might want to say, look, making sense of an expectation value uh, or something like that is something that you're going to have to appeal to your solution to the measurement problem. So in the Everett interpretation, it's going to say it's, it's a categorical property along with it, mm -hmm. and it, it, it presumably some difference in, 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 in a different take on it. Yes. Um, 
I'm glad you raised that last point because um, I do think that there are people out there, including yourself in their number, who, who are actively striving to restore a kind of unity to physics by developing an interpretation of quantum mechanics that could have it, um, and quantum mechanical theories in general, um, giving us a story as to what the world is like. Um, and uh, you should carry on, and <laughs> good luck to you. <laughs> I haven't succeeded. Uh, you haven't succeeded in, in giving me a story that I can buy into yet. Um, but that's what somebody should be trying to do. I do want to stress here that there's nothing wrong with the project of coming up with a wholly unified fundamental physics. Um, and uh, I would be you know, ecstatic if we could do it. The point is rather that we can understand how physics can be a wonderful thing and lead to great progress without succeeding in doing that. Simon Saunders, Oxford. Uh, can I just ask a very small question, but it's um, a bugbear of mine. Uh, what do you think Dirac actually meant when he spoke of uh, the relation of these nearly invariants to a certain frame of reference? What do you think he meant by that phrase, frame of reference? Um, again, I'm, I'm not a good enough Dirac scholar to be pinned down on that one. Um, I took it that he had in mind things like inertial frame in relativity, or um, Hilbert space basis, um, and so on. Um, is that something abstract or something concrete? By the sound of it, something abstract. What Hilbert, spell, Hilbert space basis sounds pretty abstract. Right. In inertial the, frame, not quite so. But isn't there something then terribly extraordinary here, that to be immediately aware of a relation of something to something abstract? That's why the inertial frame would be a better candidate, because one could think that, t t consider this, I mean, in special relativity, uh, you could say, look, um, what, what I'm in some sense immediately aware of is, is the length of this lectern. Uh, and how can that be, given that lengths of lecterns um, are not invariant between different frames? Well, that's because I'm occupying a frame. And therefore, I directly get that um, uh, frame perspective on it by virtue of my um, physical embeddedness. So, so th there I was appealing to the non-abstract notion of the frame. The Hilbert space basis is not going to work that way. Um, and so those two cases, for that reason alone, seem somewhat disanalogous, actually. And so you we should continue to worry about what uh, Dirac was talking about there. I am. I mean, it's a rather remarkable quotation. It appeared, I think, in all five editions of his principles over 40-odd years. Yes. But what on earth did he mean? <laughs> <laughs> I'm taking him to say something very suggestive. I'm Jos Ruffing, Utrecht. I'd like to put the mic a little closer. Okay, um, my question is this that there are, in general, Lagrangians, uh, there are different Lagrangians who would nevertheless yield the same equations of motion. Mm -hmm. uh, and I wonder whether that would pose a problem for you if you if you want to think of a Lagrangian as being real, mm -hmm. uh, because then there would be no no way of us to discover between two different realities. Yes. Yes. Okay, that's the shortest answer I've ever heard in a philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you swap over? You 
No, no, at the back though, yeah, sorry. Hi, uh, Stephen Tiley at uh, King's College London. A uh, question was about whether to take you know, these things as fields or particles. Now, one idea might be wrong, very wrong, but you could take, say, um, fermions as matter particles and bosons as fields, because, of course, you have earlier uh, the Feynman diagram and you had exchange particles now. Um, you could argue the, the forces taken as fields, but the matter is still particles, so we have a, a, mm -hmm. a middle ground. Mm -hmm. Would that be an idea you'd be open to? Yeah, I mean, that's a natural way of speaking, and... Um, I think it's a justifiable metaphor, but it's only a metaphor. So you don't think it's literally true, you think it might be, or you're just not undecided about it? Um, it, it? I don't understand how it could be literally true, put it that way. Yeah, but I mean, what about all the experiments, so, you know, elastic scattering, deep elastic scattering experiments, and there's good evidence that these particles do exist. The, the problem, of course, is that when you look at virtual particles, of course, they don't appear in the initial and final stage. You have, like, in, in scattering, you have um, inclusive or exclusive measuring processes. Inclusive mm -hmm. means all the particles you're looking at, they're all there uh, that you expect to find. In, exclusive, in, 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 exclusive are the ones that aren't all there. So, of course, you don't infer these virtual particles due to energy, time, uncertainty, principle, that you, know, you don't know if they exist or not. They just flicker and out, and we just assume they exist. And uh, that's where you have a genuine problem, because, you know, bosons are force carriers and we just assume they're there in the equations that that might be a fiction might, might, might not really be there but that's where I would you know be, cu be cautious about saying they exist but in the case of fermions I don't really think I have problems saying they exist and there's good evidence in elastic scattering deep in elastic scattering process experiments that they do exist mm -hmm. well let's see um, what kind of evidence is this I mean th the problem essentially is this we have theories which we think are wonderful theories the theories in the standard model um, and, and one would expect that if these are uh, themselves characterizing the deep structure of reality, then if there are such things as particles, we should be able to extract them um, somehow from the description or from the representations provided to us by the standard model. That, however, proves to be a very difficult thing to do. What one can do is, in certain circumstances, um, uh, mesh the standard model equations with experiment in a certain context in which by uh, making various approximations it, it's uh, to at least a certain extent legitimate to think it's consistent with those theories that there are such things as particles um, and then go on to talk about those particles um, as the decay products of interactions and so on. So I'm not saying it's illegitimate to talk about particles. From a certain perspective, uh, we should be talking about particles, but that's not the perspective which is naturally provided by our most fundamental theories, even though those theories um, uh, achieve our respect by doing what we call predicting the existence of particles and uh, be the behavior of particles and cross-sections and lifetimes and so on. Nancy Cartwright, LSE. Um, I had a question, uh, sort of first-year philosophy of science question. Um, perspectivalism now is a kind of technical term that's been pretty well developed by Ron Geary. Um, and what I heard you say uh, sounded to me um, much more like just classic instrumentalism. So I thought we might get you to comment on some of these sort of let me tell you why. What I heard you say was that um, what kind of a picture should we have about what the basic ingredients of the world are? Well, theory one um, solves some problems, 
And uh, when you use it to solve these problems, it pictures the world as having one kind of ingredient. Theory two solves other problems a lot better. And when you look at what it tells us, uh, the kind of ingredients it uses to solve the problems, it has something else. Um, that uh, sounds to me like, well, you know, theory one's a good instrument for solving these problems. Theory two is a good <laughs> instrument for solving those problems. Theory three is a good instrument for solving those. Sounds just to me like instrumentalism, where I would then think, yes, those are the pictures of the world by each of those theories, but I don't take any of them very seriously. Mm -hmm. I decide which ones I want, depending on which problems I want to solve. It just sounds like classic instrumentalism, mm -hmm. and I wondered if there was more to it than that, in particular since you used the word perspectivalism, right. and you said, well, what's really there is the relation between, mm -hmm. um, you used some words like that, that what's, right. oh, I mean, almost, what did you say, what's really there is what emerges from the relation between us and the world, or what's really there is the relations between, or something else. It's, you said something that sounded mm -hmm, much more mm -hmm. uh, richer than classic instrumentalism, okay. and only a few sentences, and so, right. yes, please, well, the, elaborate. The, yeah, thank you. That's a, quite a question. Um, first of all, a lot of people talk about perspective these days and perspectivalism. Um, I had not read Ron Geary's view of this. I've heard of a lot of other people talking that way, um, Hugh Price and my colleague Janana Smail and so on. Um, and uh, so I can't comment on the relation between what I was saying and Ron Geary's view. Right, right. Is this classical instrumentalism? It's, it's a lot closer to classical pragmatism. That's to say, um, I take it that the instrumentalist thinks there are some things related to observation um, which we can sort of take literally and, and, and understand a theory to um, derive, uh, to, to, to um, deliver up predictions about. Um, and there are other things that theories uh, appear to be telling us that aren't really things that they're telling us at all. Uh, that's just the machinery that goes into delivering the predictions. Um, that's not the view that I'm taking. I'm taking a view according to which um, to take something seriously, to, to, to take it to be real, is itself to be understood in somehow instrumental terms. Not simply in, in terms of how successful your predictions can be, but, but how much understanding you can get out of a, a, a particular perspective on the subject matter. So it's closer to pragmatism, but I'm hoping to back it up by an account of explanation which would clearly distinguish it from instrumentalism. <laughs> well, um, I don't want to have this distinction between the bits of a theory that we take to be literally telling us the way things are. Unfortunately, that only tells us the way things are observationally. Um, and the rest of the theory, which is not telling us um, the way things are, but is merely um, a tool that we use to derive the, the, the cash value of the theory, what it says about uh, observations. just following up about classic instrumentalism, I, I wouldn't have taken it to have such a distinction, but let's say it does, then the distinction would be between that collider mm -hmm. right, and me and you standing there watching the results. Uh, that kind of thing would be taken prima facie to be real and the rest to be an instrument for um, solving one or another problem. Right. And that sounds to me sound like something you got yourself committed to too. I better get out of it then. Okay. <laughs> How'd you get yourself out of it? Well, I, I want to say, for example, in my story of the Harnoff bomb effect, I want to say that that perspective gives us real understanding uh, of the phenomenon. 
um, which is made available to us by a theory which says, uh, uh, talks a lot about things that uh, are very different from you and me in that lump of stuff sitting there in Geneva. Um, it tells us about these uh, holonomy properties, for example, which are pretty um, distant from uh, an instrumentalist notion of what's observable. And that's part of the story, and we should take them very seriously. Um, and from that perspective, they're real, something like that. But you're right to press me on these things. I, I need answers better than I have at the moment. This is work in progress. Okay. If that's what you think classical instrumentalism is, then maybe it's not as bad as I thought it was. <laughs> Uh, Michael Pace. I just wanted to know, what if the hoped-for observations are made from the Large Hadron Collider, what sort of possibilities do you think that opens up uh, for future work or for consequences of how we understand the world? Well, I think the consensus amongst physicists is that that will be very disappointing. Um, we want, don't want to get what we expect from the experimental results. We want to get something new and surprising because um, the standard model has been pretty much ossified for quite a long time now and it's done so well it's hard to get beyond it and that's what people want to do so they want something new and surprising to come out of the experiments otherwise if all they do I've heard Steven Weinberg say this actually if all the experiments do is succeed in, um, in quote discovering the Higgs particle and that's all that would be terrible David Wallace, still from Oxford. <laughs> still David Wallace. <laughs> still David Wallace, yeah. Um, I, I okay, so, which perspective that's <laughs> so if particles really exist, we'd expect to find them in our most fundamental theory. Okay. Well, aircraft carriers really exist, and mm -hmm. Lakatos Prize lectures really exist, and universities really exist. Now, we're pretty unbothered about the fact that... Um, those things are emergent in, in various ways mm -hmm. that, that, that long predate the weirdness of quantum mechanics yes. from, from, from deeper theories. And while you might have worries about um, you know, whether one really can tell a reductive story that explains, say, the success of our best theory of aircraft carriers in terms of, say, classical microphysics, it's not a, that, it, that, that, the idea of that is not immediately eliminated simply by mm -hmm. observing that you don't find aircraft carriers direct in, or still less lectures yes. direct in microphysics. Certainly. So, I mean, one... One deflationary way of reading what you're saying about the AB effect is just to say, okay, well, yeah, um, classical electromagnetic fields are emergent um, uh, and non-electricity particles are emergent in both cases of the standard model. Here's a sketch of how the story right. goes, um, fill in the details, etc. Mm -hmm. I take you to be take saying something s or somewhat more radical than that, but I'm not sure I've quite got my finger on what that is. Um, well, how the emergence works might be... Um, an interesting question. If, if the emergence can be sort of clearly charted out, you can sort of follow a path from the, the more fundamental theory to the less fundamental theory, even if you can't fill in the details of the path, 
then that has significant um, unifying power. And in a sense, you no longer regard what I was thinking of as separate perspectives as separate anymore. Um, but there are cases in which it's much harder to chart such a path. Um, and you have to treat each case um, on its own. There's no uh, absolute commitment to get a clear um, uh, model for how emergence occurs in all circumstances. Uh, and there may be cases in which you just really can't, for the life of you, figure out what the path is going to be. Um, and that's both uh, a, a cause for further work to see if you can, you can actually find such a path. Uh, but it's not, uh, and also, um, at the same time, not necessarily a cause for, for worry um, because you've already got uh, stories at both levels already. Um, and that's pretty good. Thank you. Okay, well, thanks very much. I think we should now move on to the, uh, to, well, to the end of this session and re always remembering that there's a, a reception and award ceremony to follow in the atrium, which is, we went through that door, would be the next, uh, the next room. I think all that remains is to thank uh, Richard Healy for a really fascinating talk and for being so responsive to questions and in the discussion period.